Paul had said all that he needed to say from chapters 1 through 15, that the uh, content, that the meat of his message was completed, and then he thanks a bunch of people in Romans 16, and it seems like the credits at the end of a movie. It seems kind of meaningless in some ways, and one of the really cool things about these new superhero movies, um, the, they're just amazing. We saw Infinity War this past week, and it's just incredible what they're doing. But they will run the credits, and then after the credits are over at the end of the movie, there'll be another scene. And that scene could be a short scene, a warning, something that kind of harkens back to the movie or whatever. And I think that we have that here in Romans chapter 16. The credits run. He thanks the people he needs to thank. And actually, we're going to be looking at that part of the passage next week for Mother's Day because there's a lot there as well. And after the credits have run, there's one last scene. So Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul warns the readers, and he warns us to watch out, even Avoid those who place obstacles in the way of the message that he has taught. He says those people aren't really in it for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a huge statement. And so I've been really excited this whole week about this passage because I think this passage affords us the opportunity to maybe unpack our mission statement, to look at our mission statement to answer some questions, some burning questions about our mission statement. You know, I'm not one for Christian cliches, for Christian taglines, but I know that in an organization, in a church, it's so important to have everyone pulling in the same direction, for everyone to know what the vision is, what the mission is, where we're headed. So when I became the pastor, the senior pastor, about four years ago, we began the process of developing a mission statement. You know, what is our church called to? How could we build on the great history of our church? And after a lot of prayer and discussions, there were three words that really jumped to the surface. Nothing but Jesus. We believed we were called not only to define who we are and where we're going, but who we aren't. And these three words, they weren't copied from someone else. It wasn't a cute little thing that we just kind of pulled out of thin air. It was something that, and I think I can speak for our staff in our session, when I say that we could have never imagined that it would catch on the way it has. That it would become the heartbeat of who we are. That's what a mission statement should do. Our whole mission statement is we live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. 
Paul warned in this passage against those who would put stumbling blocks in the way of what he has taught them, of the message that he has taught them. And what is that message that Paul preaches? We find it all through Paul's writings, but in 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is. Nothing but Jesus. And I thought that today, can't answer all the questions, but I thought today we could unpack some of the questions that we hear as it pertains to those three words. Because Paul says at the end of Romans, watch out for those who create stumbling blocks. In other words, watch out for those who place stumbling blocks in front of this message, nothing but Jesus. It's good to wrestle with a mission statement. I did it past, this past week. You know, is it really true that Jesus paid it all? Is it really finished? Is Christ enough? Is it Jesus plus something else? Or is Jesus enough? Because it seems to me that we, we sing that a lot on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We sing just like we sang in Christ alone, but yet the reality is, is that it's Jesus plus something else. Many times it's anything but Jesus. So again, I thought we could answer some of these questions that arise when we ponder this mission statement of living to reach all people with nothing but Jesus, because I believe that is the message that Paul is referring to in these verses. It's interesting to me, not surprising, but interesting that when a church doesn't have a mission statement, when a church doesn't have a vision, right, they get criticized. And then when a church does have a mission statement and does have a vision, they get criticized. You're trying to brand it. You're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. And, you know, that doesn't bother me that much because if you aren't being criticized as a leader or as a church or as an organization, you probably aren't doing that much anyway. But what does bother me is when a mission statement like living to reach all people with nothing but Jesus is misunderstood or warped or ignored or picked apart by those who claim to be Christ's followers. Who would have thought that a mission statement, nothing but Jesus, was something that could be criticized by those who claim to be saved by nothing but Jesus? I don't know. One of my daughters said to me recently, Daddy, I think I've decided that I'm not going to date in high school because it's kind of pointless. And to that I answered, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have just let the words hang there. But I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and to that I said, you know what? I don't think you should date in high school, and maybe not at all, ever. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> she said, Daddy, when I say it, I feel good about it, but when you say it, it just makes me mad. 
And I think, or at least I hope that is what is happening to some extent when it comes to our mission statement of nothing but Jesus. Because shouldn't some variation of that be every Christian's and every church's mission statement, their heartbeat? Should that truly be that uncommon, that jarring? Because nothing but Jesus, in all fairness, is awkward grammatically. It is. We purposely chose nothing but Jesus because nothing but Jesus is shocking and limiting and it's jarring. It's awkward to say. You got to get the words out, you know, to say it. Just like reach church, reach church. To say nothing but Jesus. It's very personal. It's not a vague God type of thing. It attaches Jesus to it. It makes you one of those weird Jesus people. It would be easier to say, grammatically even, in Christ alone. Or Jesus at the center. Or maybe Jesus take the wheel. Some of you got that. We actually want nothing but Jesus to be jarring. We want it to be awkward to use in a sentence. We want it to have a life of its own. We want it to shock us and jar us because the fact is is that so many Christians, so many times, us included, can be anything but Jesus' people. It's true. We want you to feel jarred when you say nothing but Jesus. It's not personal to talk about a vague God. As much as I love in Christ alone, it's true, or Jesus at the center, it doesn't eliminate a bunch of other stuff. The use of the word nothing eliminates all else. Charles Spurgeon said, You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Everything we need, we have in Jesus. Amen? But doesn't nothing but Jesus, here's one question, doesn't that mean that we, you know, we won't cover a bunch of other topics? Doesn't it limit us? Isn't it repetitive? Doesn't, does that mean that we won't cover topics like marriage and parenting and how to deal with the culture and how to speak to one another, how to relate to one another? Doesn't that limit us? No one who is asking this question I don't think is suggesting that we're saved apart from nothing but Jesus. I don't think that. But what about other topics? And no one is saying that you don't apply Jesus to these topics. I know that. But doesn't nothing but Jesus, doesn't that become repetitive? Paul says, avoid those who distort the message I have given you. What is the message? What is this message that Paul is talking about in Romans 16. Paul's message, as we've seen, is in three parts. Romans 1 through 321 is Paul's diagnosis of the human race, that all are sinful, that all have fallen, that those inside the church, those outside the church, that all of us are sinful in ways we could have never imagined. Romans 3, 21 through 
all the way through chapter 11 is the deliverance. Is all about Jesus. It's all about salvation. What God has done for us through Jesus that we couldn't do for ourselves. And Romans 12 through 16 describes to us what our lives will start to look like when our lives are gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why this current series, which is in Romans 12 through 16, is called What Your Life Could Be. So the question of of covering different topics is actually answered in Paul's message. Romans 1 through 321, I mean, he goes through every single part of our hearts, every possible topic you could imagine, and then some. Romans 12 through 16, where we're at right now, it's one topic, one life topic after another. Because these chapters, these bookends, are all about what is called, listen, listen, this will change your life. It's heady, but it will change your life. It will change the way you read scripture. It will change the way you relate to your children. It will change the way you relate to others. Because these bookends in Romans are called the law of God. They're commands. The law of God is any time we are given a command in Scripture. The law of God is any time we are told what is pleasing to God. Think of the law of God as what would Jesus do. Remember that kind of cheesy bracelet thing that was going? WWJD, right? It's great. I mean, what would Jesus do is a perfect description of the law of God. What would Jesus do? The law of God. And Paul brings that into his message in Romans. That's where we learn all about life. That's where we study the different topics. That's where we study character traits, the way we treat others, the way we think. But for Paul, just as with Jesus, listen, the law of God goes way, way deeper than we could ever imagine. It goes way deeper. It requires way more. The law rightly preached is the practical of the sermon. It is the practical of the messages we hear. We cover all the topics you could possibly imagine through the preaching of the law of God or what would Jesus do, but it goes far deeper than the externals, than our outside behavior. And Jesus said the same things in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes some of the Ten Commandments, and he unpacks them. He says, you know, you think that you haven't committed adultery. You think you're not an adulterer because you haven't committed the physical act of adultery. But yet I tell you, Jesus said, if you've looked on someone lustfully, in your heart you have already committed adultery. Adultery. That's way deeper than what they had thought. Said, you know, it says do not murder, and you think because you haven't taken a knife or taken a gun and actually ended someone's life that you're not a murderer. But Jesus said, I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, angry, or you call him a fool, you're a murderer. You know, I didn't say that stuff. I mean, that is crazy stuff. He goes so deep into the law's requirements. If your brother takes your jacket, give him your shirt too. 
Don't sue him. Give him your shirt too. If he says go one mile with me, go two miles. Turn the other cheek. I mean, all of these things. If you have an offense, if someone's offended you, go to them and work it out. But he also says, if someone else is offended by you, if someone is offended by you, you are to go to them and work it out before it spins out of control. And, you know, if we think that we're doing really well and we're doing all of these things, Jesus finally says, here's the sum of the entire law. Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Leaves no man standing. That's what the law of God is. So we cover a lot of topics, but we go really deep. I mean, it's not just doing the right thing. It's wanting to do the right thing. It's thinking the right thing. It's doing the right thing with the right motives. Think about how deep that goes. In fact, you could argue that with God, it's more important that your heart is right. It's more important that you want to do the right things. It's more important that you're doing it for the right reason as opposed to just merely doing the right thing. That's what the law of God is. How much more practical could you get? Sometimes I think it's not about the practicals. It's more about it being too much meddling in our hearts. It's just not what we want to hear. Nothing but Jesus, which is what would Jesus do when it comes to the law of God, covers every area of life. Let me give you an example of, of something that, you know, on the external, it would seem like we're doing the right thing, but it's so much more than that. Um, you know, whenever you do something big, if you're a leader or whatever, or, you know, whatever the case may be, when you do something big, there's going to be detractors. There's, there's going to be people who speak out against you, who spread false rumors or whatever, you know, and when you become a leader, you turn in your victim card. So you can't be a victim. Criticism comes with the territory. You could also apply this to your own life when it comes to relationships. When someone criticizes you, when someone treats you the wrong way, when you're in a dispute with someone, with a friend, with a family member, whatever. You know, just as when you're a leader and these things happen, knowing when to respond publicly and answer those criticisms is very difficult. And when to just be quiet. And it's the same thing in relationships. Many times when you hear things or whatever it is that's going on, it's, you want to defend yourself. You want to speak out. You want to set the record straight. And so what is it that we do in those circumstances that seems like the right thing? We take not the low road, but the what? The high road. Take the high road. That usually means shut your mouth. Don't say anything. You know what the high road is. It's not the low road. The high road is you don't get into the gutter with your critics. You know, you let them stay in the gutter. When it comes to the high road, you know, the high road is it's totally open. Open road. There's no accidents on the high road because, you know, you're one of the only ones up there on that high road. You know, down on the low road, there's all of these accidents and fatalities. It's congested because there's all these people down there on that low road. 
But, you know, in your best life now, you should really take that high road. And so that's very practical in, in everything in life. But too often, that's where preaching stops, you know, or that's where our teaching stops. You know, take the high road. Jesus took the high road. Jesus, let him take the wheel, you know, on that high road. Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but the high road, you know. And so someone criticizes us and we don't respond. We take the high road. We're taking the high road. But I, Chuck Betters, I don't want to take the high road, even though I take the high road. My motives for taking the high road are extremely unholy. My motives for taking the high road usually are so I can win. Because I know that if I take the low road, I'll be perceived as just getting in the gutter with others. I mean, do you see how deep this goes? Do you see how deep the law of God goes? You know, if people can't see that I took the high road instead of the low road, I will figure out a way to announce that I took the high road, right? Maybe a Facebook status here or there or a quote, you know, something about the high road or low road or staying silent. So listen, externally I may take that high road, but internally, guess what? I'm on the low road. Guys are probably thinking, Chuck, you are sick. (laughs) And I am. That's why I preach nothing but Jesus. That's why I need this message as much as you do. Not only must I externally take the high road, I must want to take the high road. I must take the high road for the right reasons to glorify God in everything that we do. Taking the high road, the low road. You may be called to take the low road. I mean, you may be called to get down in that gutter and respond to some things. What happens then? Hmm? Is that okay if God's called you to that? Because sometimes he does. The law should not only deal with external behaviors, but it cracks us open and it exposes. That's what expository preaching is. It exposes the sinner. That's what it does. The law should leave no man standing. So when you talk about different topics, doesn't nothing but Jesus limit the topics? It doesn't limit anything. The law of God actually deepens what you can address. The law of God, it's amazing. By the end of the law, we need to feel desperate for deliverance. If we don't feel desperate for deliverance after we've been cracked open and the recesses of our heart have been explored, we haven't really heard the law of God. We haven't. So back to the question, just because nothing but Jesus is catchy and is said over and over again doesn't mean that we don't address every topic we can possibly imagine. In fact, with a law, what would Jesus do approach, we actually cover far more ground because we deal not just with the externals, but the inner recesses, those corners of our hearts. And that's when real change happens. That's when real change happens. 
You know what you need to do. You know what you're called to do. You know what you're supposed to do. You need to be able to see how deep the problem goes and then be on your knees and on my knees, desperate for someone who did it for us. Nothing but Jesus. Another question you get when you preach this message of grace is that if you preach this message of grace, then everyone's just going to sin and sin and sin some more. I mean, watch out for the teenagers. They're going to go and they're going to go to parties. They're going to get drunk. They're going to do drugs. I mean, if you really preach this message of grace, you better be really careful with that. And the problem with that question at its foundation is this binary idea of law and grace. Because it's not law and grace. Stop saying law and grace. Should I give law or should I give grace? Stop saying that. It's not law and grace. It's law and gospel. Grace overarches the entire thing of law and gospel. There is grace in the law. It saves us in some ways from a lot of ramifications. King David said, I meditate on your law day and night. I love your law. I delight in it. It saves us. It saves us from destruction in some ways. It's, there's grace in the law. There wasn't grace in the gospel for Jesus at all. There was no grace for him. A lot of grace for us. Infinite grace for us. So it's not a matter of preaching nothing but Jesus, and that means people do whatever they want to do. We actually draw grace out when it comes to the law of God, and when it comes to the gospel, there's infinite grace. Another question about nothing but Jesus in this message is, what about the Old Testament? I mean, you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, do you? I mean, people would never say that. They would say there's the prophecies and things like that. But all these stories in the Old Testament, I mean, we basically see them and we see them as life lessons, right? These are, this is one hero after another that we can emulate. You know, we need to be like David and slay the giants. That's what the Old Testament is, right? Wrong. In Luke 24, Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. He's talking to two of his disciples. And Luke tells us that Jesus showed them how all of the Old Testament pointed to him. All of it. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of scripture points to Jesus, all of it, nothing but Jesus. So if someone is preaching through the Bible, and many times when we see this passage in Romans 16, this warning, all of this stuff about these false teachers or whatever, we're thinking about, you know, people out in the world, you know, whoever it is that is preaching against what we believe, or we think about these silly preachers on TV, you know, with the big hair and putting their hand up against the screen and, or with a big smile and things like that, self-help type stuff. That's not really what's applicable to us, though. You need to be careful with people like me. You need to be careful with people that you see on the internet who are known as great Bible teachers and preachers because you can forget Jesus in one day. Just because someone is, quote unquote, preaching the word of God through the Bible doesn't mean they're preaching Jesus. There's a big, big difference. 
One is moralism and a therapeutic deism, and the other is Christ-centered preaching. So if someone says they're preaching the Bible, even a well-known, serious Bible teacher, and they aren't preaching Jesus, avoid them, Paul says. He actually warned them about Peter at one point in the book of Galatians. I mean, test us. Test us when it comes to the gospel. Hold us accountable to preach Jesus over and over and over again. The Old Testament is in the catalog of heroes, but one failure after another, all of which point to Jesus. All of us should make us long for a Savior. A sermon is not a sermon until it gets to Jesus. Jesus is the whole ball game. It's the whole ball game. It's crazy to me. It's inane. It's just it's so strange how we've strayed so far away from this simple message of Jesus. It's craziness. I mean, it's the whole ball game. Some of those who don't preach Jesus are sometimes some of the biggest stars in the evangelical world. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. It's not enough to just tack Jesus on at the end. It's not enough to just preach about a vague God. It's not enough to just preach, you know, you can preach with a big smile. You can preach with a big frown. And both of those groups, essentially, at times, are doing the same thing. Just preaching law, law, law. And usually it doesn't even go nearly as deep as what the Scriptures say. Isn't it enough It is not enough to preach the Bible. It is not enough to just say, I'm preaching the Bible. Are you preaching Jesus through the Bible? John Stott said, Christianity is Christ. The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, And if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it, there is nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. God's demand in the law is to be perfect. No one is perfect. Jesus was perfect For you. Because he was perfect for you, you, me, we can love others. That's why we can love others. That's how. If WWJD is what would Jesus do, the law, what has Jesus done? WHJD, that's a new one. So much of preaching is do more, try harder. It's already been tried and done by Jesus. What has Jesus done? That's the gospel. When we've come to the end of our rope, when we've come to the end of the law of God, when we've seen that it's not those people out there that are the problem, it's us in here, 
when we've seen that our sin is far, far greater than we could have ever imagined in words, thoughts, and deeds. Thoughts, the things that you don't say, those are words before God. And deeds, he sees all of it. When we see all of that and have come to the end of ourselves, which is daily, I don't care if you've been a Christian for a day or for 40 years, it's daily you come back to the gospel. It's the glorious good news of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, his resurrection that has made salvation and sanctification that's becoming more and more like Jesus available to fallen sinners. Jesus paid it all. That's the gospel. It is finished. You are in forever, regardless of what you do. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, there's things that you can do that will ruin your life here on earth, but it is finished between us and God if you are in Christ. When we grasp the gospel, we should leave saying, my chains fell off. My heart is free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That because of what Jesus has done, that condemnation for us is an impossibility. It's not possible for us to be condemned. The gospel has nothing to do with anything we have done. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what you should find when you come to be with the body of Christ. Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Another question is, isn't all of this just for non-believers? I mean, isn't the gospel nothing but Jesus? Isn't that just presenting the gospel over and over again? Well, it's not quite. It's not quite the same thing. You'll notice that at our church, we very rarely have an altar call. We very rarely have a time when we'll, you know, tell you to become a Christian on the spot. That's not really what we're, we're doing here. But the gospel isn't just for non-Christians. It's for all of us, for those who have been Christians for decades. I mean, why? Why do those who have been Christians for decades need desperately to constantly go deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel? It should be obvious. If you have experienced it, you know it. Martin Luther said unbelief in the gospel. Unbelief in the gospel is the root of all sin. So if you have a sin in your life, the reason why you have that sin in your life is because of disbelief in the gospel. Every time you are tempted to sin is a temptation to disbelieve the gospel. It is. It's a temptation to be an atheist in that moment. It is. It's a hard statement. But if you truly believed you were seated with Christ and he was right next to you, nothing but Jesus, you wouldn't commit that sin. You just simply wouldn't do it. Martin Luther, when you fail to believe nothing but Jesus, you give yourself over to other things. The only way we're going to improve 
The only way we will benefit from covering a bunch of different topics is when our faith in Christ is bolstered. The one thing that can set you free from sin is not the law, but it's the gospel. All the law does is condemn. All it does is expose us. All it does is show us what's pleasing to God and how we're not doing it. That's all it does. It condemns us. The gospel is the only thing that gives us the power, the fuel to actually change. Faith and nothing else produces love for God and love for others. Faith in the gospel and nothing else is what allows you to change. How's it working out for you if that's not your approach? Theologian said, Christ is not a reservoir, but a spring. If we do not perpetually draw the fresh supply from the living fountain, we will either grow stagnant or empty. It is therefore not so much a perpetual fullness as a perpetual filling of Jesus that changes us. I want Reed's church to be a waterfall of the gospel, just pouring over us deeper and deeper and deeper. I saw a thing about oranges the other day. You know, it went something like this. If you squeeze an orange, what do you get? You get orange juice. So when you're squeezed, when you're criticized, when life's pressure comes down on you, when you're squeezed, what comes out? What's in your heart? Bitterness maybe. Lack of love. Resentment. Entitlement. Whatever that may be. Retaliation. Or when you're squeezed, does nothing but Jesus come out? When we fully expose the law, we will not only expose the sinner to the depths of their soul, but it will practically show us what we need to do. That's another one of those criticisms of nothing but Jesus, and we kind of hit on it. But what about you know, the practicals? And we've seen that the past several weeks. I mean, we see the practicals in Romans 13. When Paul talks about respecting authorities, respecting the leaders God has put into place, he says they are ordained by God, that God put them there, whether you like them or not, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you think they're good or you think they're bad, God put them there. We don't like that passage. And then we have another one we don't like in Romans chapter 14. You know, when when I have people who come in to the office and they're in heated disagreements with one another, about a disputable matter. You know, the practical is, is to just open up the Bible and read Romans 14 out loud. That's all you got to do. There's the practical. We know what we need to do. The challenge isn't knowing what to do, but actually doing it. Which we won't do unless our faith is increased because every time Every time, listen, every time we sin in word, thought, motive, all of it, we are disbelieving the gospel momentarily. It's our faith that we need more of. Small faith, our weak faith. So we don't need behavior modification. We need a deeper love for Jesus. And that will result in love for God and our neighbor. 
shouldn't we be careful? I mean, shouldn't we qualify the gospel? Shouldn't we qualify nothing but Jesus? Shouldn't we say nothing but Jesus, but, you know, shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we add something to it? Listen, if the gospel doesn't blow you away when you hear it, when you hear the gospel, if you don't say that can't be true, that's too good to be true, if you hear the gospel and you don't say, are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like it's something from another time and another place. That's because it is from another time and another place. If you don't hear the gospel, if when you hear the gospel you don't say, what? How can that be? How can it be that I should gain? If you don't say something like that, then you haven't heard the gospel. It's otherworldly. It's crazy. It doesn't make natural sense to us. We have to fight back. There's no footnotes to the gospel. There's no conditions on the gospel. There's no explaining the gospel and saying, you know, this is what it isn't right over here. You know, don't do this. Be careful about that. That's mixing law and gospel. Paul says, avoid those people who qualify the gospel. He said it in Galatians Read Galatians. I mean, some are obsessed with telling us what the gospel isn't. Making sure it's not as radical as it seems. Instead of just proclaiming the good news, the radicality of the gospel. The flesh is always resistant to this unconditional message. Our flesh is always resistant to it is finished. We always want to do more. Try harder. And you know, listen, you know when you hear it and when you don't. You know when you really truly hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that grace, that infinite grace. And here's another thing. You kind of know when you encounter a person who truly gets the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want when people encounter people from Reach Church out there, I want them to see something so different in us. I don't want them to see a model of what we see in so many churches and churchianity and politics and all of that stuff today. I want them to see something so counter to all of that. You know by the things people focus on, whether they truly, truly get it. And you could be a Christian all your life and still not really get it. If you're still focused on petty little things instead of the infinite grace that we have in the gospel. In closing, I had a young person ask me recently, (laughs) she said, you know, when we say nothing but Jesus at Reach Church, what about God? I'm like, oh my goodness, we have so far to go. What about God? Here's where nothing but Jesus gets more and more glorious and deeply personal, if it's not already. What they were asking is, what about the Trinity? What about the Father? What about the Holy Spirit? Are we saying nothing but Jesus? That means you're ignoring the Trinity. You're ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're ignoring the Father. Um, It doesn't minimize the Father and the Holy Spirit. It maximizes the Father and the Holy Spirit. Nothing but Jesus maximizes the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, first, Jesus said, I will give you my, key word, my Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit of Christ. That's what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 8. It would be like me leaving you and saying my spirit will be with you. Now, not even close to Jesus. I'm saying as far as me saying I'm leaving you, my spirit will be with you. That's why Paul in Romans 8 calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of Christ. And this is a simplistic illustration. It doesn't come anywhere close to plumbing the depths of the Trinity. I mean, it's very difficult to explain. Think of the cape, the cape of a superhero, right? I saw, you know, you have to excuse me, I saw one of these big movies this past week, so these illustrations are coming out. One of the superheroes in the movie is Doctor Strange, and part of his power is that he has this cape that you know, basically has a life of its own if it's off of him, but it's part of him, it's on him, but it's not, you know, it's not in him, it's just kind of part of him. See, it's a simplistic, crude explanation of the Holy Spirit, but it, it's helpful because part of its power is that its cape has a life of its own even when apart from the body. You have Christ the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus' physical body is at the right hand of God right now, but his Holy Spirit, excuse me, but his cape is among us. The Holy Spirit's greatest function is to point us to Christ. Jesus said, my Holy Spirit will testify about me. What? Testify what? It is finished. It is finished. Whispering to us over and over again, look at what Jesus did. Look at what he did for you. And because of that, you can have fruit in your life. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. Trust in him. Trust in him and your life will be changed. The Son and the Holy Spirit are two persons. Nothing but Jesus fits perfectly with the Holy Spirit. What about the Father? Here's where it gets even more glorious. The Father is transcendent, unknowable. You know, that's, he's far off. He's not accessible until Jesus intercedes for us, until Jesus mediates for us. He said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and do you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Jesus brings the Father close. But it's more than that. We stand before the Father as if we were Jesus. Because Jesus, his son, stood before the Father as if he were you when he died on the cross. And because of nothing but Jesus, the Father, I say this a lot, I could say it every week, the Father waits for the prodigal son and the daughter to come home. He's not far off. The Father sits on the porch, he waits, and when we are still a long ways off, what is it that we do? What is it that he does? He runs to us. He doesn't lecture him, he honors him. Because of Jesus, the Father isn't far off. The Father is closer than ever because of nothing but Jesus. The Father's arms... Listen, are open wide because of nothing but Jesus. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, on the cross, was pleasing to the Father. 
And his resurrection is what sealed the deal. Because he was raised, because Jesus lives, we are pardoned by the Father. Because he lives, we need not fear the Father if fear means being afraid. Because he lives, we can have rest for our souls. Paul said, avoid those who put stumbling blocks in the way of this glorious message he has proclaimed and then he says these encouraging words, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.